When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Facebook. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So this week's interview is with a former professor of mine by the name of Dr. Jean Saint-Denis. He's a professor of philosophy and science at York University. He is, if not retired, soon to be. He's a friend of mine as well. He's one of the professors that I've stayed in touch with for a long, long time. And today's interview is really interesting. It's about the philosophy of sexuality, actually. But it gets into a lot more than that. It gets into respect. It gets into sex and violence. It gets into, you know, how, how we think about and how we talk about what we see. It's about how we treat others and it's about our relationship to sexual repression and a whole host of other things that I know you're going to find interesting and maybe even for some of you a little controversial. Professor Jean Saint-Denis, you're going to love this interview, so stay tuned. Well, welcome to Face to Face and we are joined by a very special guest today, Professor Jean Saint-Denis from York University. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Jean. My pleasure. So, uh, Uh, Jean and I met 
I bet you it's 20 years ago, which is insane when I think about it. I was a student at York. I started out in uh, arrogant enough to think that I could study philosophy, and I took a course in, uh, I think it was natural science, I natural believe. Science. And um, so, so, uh, and we've kind of been friends ever since. So, yeah. again, thanks for joining us today. So, Professor Jean Saint-Dor, he's taught uh, extensively in gender and sexuality, argumentation and argumentation theory, the history of science, which is kind of how, how we met. And he published a book in 2014 with Nelson called Critical Thinking, Argument and Argumentation. It's a beautiful book and worth, uh, worth picking up. And there'll be a link uh, on the site um, today. So we're going to talk, I mean, John, one of the troubles I'm going to have today, I think, is focusing. Okay. And because, you know, you've got a lot of knowledge, you've got a lot of experience teaching students. There's all kinds of things we could chat about. And, but I think I want to focus on the whole idea of gender and sexuality. I mean, I'm teaching in international development now. Most of the students in my class are, are, are women, uh, postgraduates going out to change the world. And gender uh, disparity and gender justice is a huge issue for them, yeah. as it is for, I think, most of us in, in this field or these fields. I grew up in a pretty conservative home. I grew up, you know, I don't think my parents ever would have said this, but the implication was that you know, it's best if you don't speak about things like sex, religion, and politics. I mean, I was, you know, quite old when I was kind of given the book on sexuality to read and got a little bit from Playboy and a little bit from, you know, high school and so <laughs> on. Um, and don't, certainly don't talk about politics. I mean, I couldn't have told you what, how my dad voted mm -hmm. until I was probably in my mid-20s. <laughs> you know, kind of nuts, right? Yeah, I don't believe that today. I think we should be talking about these things often. Can you talk to me about that? Maybe you know, maybe there's a story or two there. But w why is that? Why is it? I think I think there's several different things involved, and I agree with you. These are important things. They're central to social policy. They're central to understanding the world. They're central to understanding ourselves and our place in the world. We don't talk about it. We don't talk do a lot of talking with our kids, we don't do a lot of talking about politics, and we don't do a lot of talking about religion, except to indoctrinate. Right. And that's the problem. All of these are flashpoint issues. I have a, somebody I know fairly well, who is a fairly strong conservative Republican. And That's too bad. He, it's very bad. <laughs> um, and he will start saying things, and I will bring something up, and if I disagree with him, he simply shuts up. Right. Right, so I mean, there's no room even. There's no room for discussion. There's no room for... And I mean, he, he repeats the sort of CNN Fox line. Obama doesn't have a birth certificate. Right. The U.S. Right, birth certificate. Right. Obamacare is horrible. Yeah. I mean, and then you start bringing up data and facts and evidence, and he won't address it. Right. I mean, there's a whole fear, I think, of talking about these things because we're not used to and we haven't established a climate or a ground groundwork in terms of which we can discuss with others controversial issues. Um, many parents and generation I grew up with, I never got the sex lecture until I was 19. So, and by then it was a little late. Well, so I, so I read an article recently, yeah. a young woman who's probably in her late teens, uh, article where she's quoted and said by by nine years old, my understanding of sexuality was screwed up because of what she was learning on the playground, because of, and this was sort of post, I guess, uh, cell phone or at least uh, image on cell phone age. Yeah. And so she's getting to see images and websites and, and so on. And 
her understanding is kind of screwed up. And that hit me hard because of, you know, I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. When do we, you know, it's already started, but how does it happen, right? How does it happen in a healthy way? The issue issue is we we let kids see this stuff. And, And the main thing is we're trying to prevent them from seeing it. The difficulty is they need to know about it. And not, you don't have to give them the whole lecture when they're six years old. But they do need to start understanding about sex and sexuality and the issues behind that, issues about respect for persons, issues about consent, issues about um, um, the changes going on in their body. My sister went in, was in, I think, first year in high school and suddenly started bleedings, having her period. She'd never been taught about it. She thought she was dying. She thought she was dying, yeah. And I went bet. home in hysterics. I bet. Yeah. Because she had no knowledge and she'd not been taught. That lecture came two years later when it was too late. Right. Well, and that's just really physiological and practical. That's almost basic. not even very basic. Yeah. 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 And then you get into the fact that, first of all, our kids are exposed to a lot of sexuality on the web, on all kinds of areas. They're exposed to sexuality in commercials, they're exposed to all kinds of things, and they're exposed to a form of sexuality that is dangerous. Um, because it it glamorizes, it sets up unrealistic expectations about what each person should be. They all have to be be runway models or porn stars, right. and that is not ninety nine point nine percent of the population. Um, there's a wonderful TED talk by a woman named Cindy Gallup. G A L I think it's G A L L U P or maybe O P. Um, I'll have to get the reference for okay, you. Yeah, we'll put it in the, 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 the it's, link. It's slightly X-rated, but okay. it's not that badly Whoa, X-rated. right up my alley. Uh, yeah, and she actually talks about, and she started a, move, a movement. She's a really successful advertising exec. Hmm. And she started a movement about make love, not porn. Interesting, okay. Arguing that she, she has a great line in the, in the thing saying, um, I date younger men, and when I date younger men, I have sex with younger men. And they all think we're the porn stars. And she then goes on a bit about how their expectations about how sexual encounters are supposed to run come from their viewing of porn. And not from a recognition and realization that they're dealing with another human being right. and have to negotiate the interaction. Heaven forbid that you might actually have blood flowing through your veins. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Or that you have preferences that yeah. you want or in emotions. a sexual encounter yeah. or emotions. Yeah. Or fears, or insecurities, or all of that. and the list goes on. Yeah. And so, and so that's why the I want to get to this too. You know, yeah. we had this brief conversation before we hit record about hypersexualization. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about that because I think there's a real paradox in our culture. But so, is that the danger for you then? The the ubiquity of 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 sexual images and in, in in lifestyle advertising, pornography on film, and so on. Is it is it that it's setting me up for a, a, I don't know, is it dehumanizing me in some way? Is that kind of what you're saying? Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to relate to that woman in a, in a, in a healthy way or in a if, human way? Well, if that's what, the way we want to use the word dehumanizing, I like avoiding that because my students right. tend to go dehumanizing, rectifying, and use all the right. labels, but yeah, don't sure. understand them. Sure, sure. I think the critical thing is it doesn't, we don't learn through much of our culture how to communicate and talk with other people about important and sensitive issues. Whether that be religion or politics or sex. And so we leave it 
unstated and assume that other people share our assumptions. And if they don't, we shut up and walk away, or we then try and convert them. Instead of saying, okay, part of the educating of others, and particularly young people, is teaching them how to talk about these kinds of issues. How to establish rules, how to establish ground rules uh, of successful communication. I think a key part of dealing with sexuality is learning how to, and this is part of the research I did when I was in San Francisco, on how to negotiate with others on sexual encounters. Part of the study I was working on was the study of where and how we negotiate with others about sexuality and how much we assume. Hmm. And I found a great deal of what happened particularly among male-female, because I was also looking at gay and I was also looking at some BDSM encounters, was the fact that in heterosexual encounters, the closer you got to the heterosexual norm, the less got negotiated. The less we talked about... It was just assumed. It was just assumed. And, and Men that, do this, women do this, and that's just the I'm way supposed to feel this. Right. And so we don't talk about what my needs are, what my feelings are, how I'm responding to you, we don't get a chance to open up and say, no, I'd really like to do this or try this or I'm not comfortable with that. So there's no room for brokenness no. at that point. No. There's, it's almost, that's almost dehumanizing in a way, isn't it? And that, I think, is even yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd like to mention one quick study. It was a study done at York by, I think, a man named James Check. And he was studying the effect of pornography on people's attitudes. A side effect of one of his studies was that um, he was trying to discover if watching porno pornographic material had a, a um, negative effect, a, um, can't think of the word offhand, but basically made you callous right. towards right. your partner. And he found that, interestingly, he found it occurred with both males and females. Not just It wasn't just males towards females, or females all the same thing. But he tended to find it occurred primarily with violence, not with sex. Hmm. But he also found one critical thing. Depending on if and how the student was debriefed after they had viewed this, so they would view a mock rape. And these were from commercial Oh, so this stuff. was pretty violent pornography. It was then. somewhat was, violent pornography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was what he was working with. And... Trying to measure the cows. The ironic thing was all the research that came out of the 90s and early 2000s showed that um, viewing explicit sexual material did not make you callous, did not have these effects. It was the sex with violence that did, and simply viewing violent material was worse than both. Right. So it was the violence that was the real trigger. But what he found was with the sex and violence, the mock rape stuff, uh, I think he was using a scene from Swept Away, um, was that how you debrief people afterwards and talking about to them about the reality of sexual assault and rape. If you didn't debrief them, they developed this sort of ca casual attitude. They had it coming or they wanted it. If you right. did debrief them on the real effects, they developed a much greater sympathy Interesting. And one of the things that came out of this whole discussion, analysis, and out of his work was that how we talk about what we see, how we talk about the sexuality, that's good. Know, kids watching pornography, okay, it's going to happen. 
It's going it's to happen. It's going to happen without a doubt. I mean, parents are not, I mean, and this is what Elizabeth and I are facing with our kids. It's going to happen, period. Yeah. It's pro it might even have already happened. It might have already nine, happened. You know, so now what? Yeah. Now the question is, okay, I know this is going to happen. I mean, parents have several things. I'm going to forbid you, forbid you from doing this and prevent you. Right. I, we, we, I don't know if this was a friend of ours, but somebody we knew, and they, they had a timer or some sort of setting application that would shut down the whole router at 11.50 and every night. So it was down Steph from 11.7. You know, so, you know, so they could, they could police their kids that way, yeah. right? The whole house got shut down for eight hours or whatever, right? Yeah. That's one method, but That's one method. may not be the best approach. But they're going to be on at 4 o'clock when they come home from school. Um, I think the critical thing, and it's based again on this understanding, that how we process, how we interpret this information is what's critical. And understanding you know, something about the nature of sexually explicit material um, how it's produced, how it's manufactured, etc. I'm not going to get into the politics of is this degrading, etc. There's some right. really good feminist scholars who challenged the old-style feminist critiques. Right. And they're really good. Linda Williams, for example, has done a whole thing on, on pornography as a genre. She also does horror movies and science fiction and other stuff. She does some really good stuff on this. And there's some others as well who've thought about it and worked on it. But they're looking and saying, we have to understand this first. Second, it's communicating with our kids about the values and what they're saying. Okay, you know most women are not, are not like porn stars. And most people don't have sex the way they're portrayed in, on, the, on the web stuff. Right. Or, and, even, or even maybe in Hollywood and even, film, mainstream And Hollywood film. mainstream films. Just I the mean, assumptions that are made, right? And it's how clean and... Uh, uh, calculated it seems to be how clean how calculated yeah. how there's never a mistake nobody sneezes nobody <laughs> right. has that's right hey i know. gotta go uh urinate i'll be right back yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> yeah it just doesn't happen the reality i mean hollywood is about as real real as yeah it's you know, true most porn it, films it's true yeah, it, yeah. and so you yeah. get this fake image yeah yeah of what the world is like I remember, I remember, uh, just hit me, so Pretty Woman came out at, a mm -hmm. at the same time a film, I believe by a director by the name of Teresa Russell, did a film called The Whore. And I remember this specifically because here's Pretty Woman making hundreds of millions of dollars about this hooker, basically, uh, yeah. that was incredibly glamorous, Yeah, you know, meets the rich guy, isn't it wonderful, look at the hotel room and the food, et cetera, and the clothes. Yeah. And then this woman, Teresa Russell, saying, hang on a minute, you want, it, you want the real work on what it means to be a prostitute for folk? watch my film yeah don't watch this one watch it, right and there's yeah. just this incredible it seems disconnect the incredible disconnect yeah. and that's yeah. the point is oftentimes not just kids teenagers yeah. uh, even adults yeah. and that's the point that i think cindy gallup was getting at was this incredible disconnect between the produced and it is product produced it's yeah. a production yeah sure with high production values and the rest of it produced for an audience and conveying it, it's about as real as most reality shows, which are right. I have serious doubts about as well. Yeah, sure, sure. But the whole question is get back to the real issue is what do we do? What do we do afterwards? What do we do what afterwards? What are we doing afterwards? But also, yeah. how do we, we, we don't focus on how do we teach our kids yeah. to communicate about sex, both 
you know, not in joking manner. There's right. a lot of right. a lot of communication about yeah. sex that yeah. is really shows a discomfort. Yes. With it. Yeah. And a lack of knowledge, and I don't really understand women, so I'll make these nasty jokes about right them. Well, it's a way of masking your own insecurities it seems your own lack of your lack of yeah. knowledge etc right your it own is, embarrassment maybe even and it's also not being real and not being authentic to yourself yeah, and authentic yeah. within the other person yeah. and it's teaching how do we get our kids how do we teach anyone myself included yeah i had much of the same stuff um yeah. Yeah. discomfort about lots of sexuality trouble about talking about it um i went through i was when i was first tagged to teach a sexuality and gender course, sociology course at York, I realized there was lots I had discomfort with, hmm. lots I didn't know, lots of, lots of mm. at the same time I was just uncomfortable Interesting. about. Do you mean? Do you mean like you're you're up at the front of the room and you're gonna you've got slides or you're gonna talk about X and you all of a sudden, like, geez, I don't know if I want to toss this out there, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, or wh what do I know about homosexuality? Right. Right. What do I know about? Right. right. You know this. I've got a lot of reading. But there's a critical difference between oh, yeah. reading and yeah. theoretically understanding yeah. and having, okay, I, I know people who are gay and I can right. understand. I didn't have that experience at that point. I've got lots of gay friends now and it's quite, I'm extremely comfortable with them. Um, but at that point, it was, it was both a, a lack of theoretical knowledge, empirical knowledge, and emotional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so partly I, I went through a training program, actually off and on for, for about a year wow. um, before I really started teaching the course for the first time. I got much more comfortable with it, much more able to communicate and talk with do you, about do you ever, Did you ever have anyone, you know, you're at a dinner party, so, oh, hey, yeah, and what do you teach? Oh, I teach gender and sexuality. And they're like, really? Like, wow, that's a bit weird. Tell me more. Kind of, did you Usually ever have I don't get to tell me more. <laughs> it's, a, it's about like when I say, right. or I, so, I say, I teach the history so, of science. So Sean, oh, really? What, are what you, did you think about the Leafs? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, are you, um, so are you working out your own uh, yeah. troubles? You know, that's, yeah. you know, kind of would, would be a question I would ask at a dinner party, yeah. but maybe not most. But uh, Yeah, no, and, and, it's and it's reasonable. I mean, why did you get into it? Yeah, exactly. Why would no. you get into that? I got yeah. into it, first of all, because I was interested in the area. I was interested in sex and sexuality. I always have been. But there have been no theoretical outlets. And it wasn't something that was talked about in the university at that point much. Right. Um, I got lucky in that one of the people I studied with was one of the, one of the co-authors of the Kinsey Report. Wow. Okay. Um, and um, we had quite different, ended up quite different theoretical perspectives and positions. Um, and that was fine, but part of what I was working with was learning about sexuality and then learning how to communicate about it. And I happened to be in an open community in San Francisco um, that people talked about their sexuality. They talked about aspects and dimensions of their sexuality and learned you could talk about it without saying, okay, this is not a come on to yeah, Go to or, bed with or you're a lunatic for believing that. Or you're a lunatic, why, or why is that so tough? I mean, you know, we, you know, religion, uh, uh, politics, you know, things where you seem to be opinionated, right? Yeah. Where you can have a strong feeling about something. And I think your comment, you know, early on is we don't we don't talk about these things unless we're indoctrinating. Yeah. So unless you give me a pulpit, I'm yeah. not interested. Yeah. Or unless you already agree with me, I'm yeah. not interested. I'll agree with you, or. I'm, not, I'm going that? to convert you. So I want to continue to talk about sexuality, one of my favorite topics yeah. too, but 
why can't we? Why can't I argue with you about something and then you and I go have a drink later? Why can't you and I go shoot a game of pool later and still be friends? I mean, I know that we can, but I, I think a lot of us have a, a real difficult. tough time doing that. It's difficult. Yeah. Um, I think... And that's your argumentation theory, it seems. That's my argumentation yep. theory. I'm going to do a very, very brief thing. Um, it comes out of my whole work on, on both understanding why people believe in things like pseudoscience and, and things like astrology, my work in argumentation theory, and it comes over in sexuality. And that, that is, there's a couple of researchers. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is probably the best. He has a best-selling book called Thinking, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, he's a Nobel laureate in, in economics, and he got it for this research. He's really a clinical, he's really a cognitive psychologist and applies it to economics, but it really is about understanding. And it's our, how our mind works. Our mind works on two levels, the system one and system two. The system one is an emotional, intuitive, reactive. I don't have to think about it, I just react. System two is a slow, reflective, analytical. And that's the level on which, which real critical thinking occurs. And the, the critical thing for our discussion right now is I think what happens with politics, religion, sex, and there's other areas, mm -hmm. our primary ones, is we trigger that system one mind. We trigger that quick reactive response. It's based on our emotions, it's based on, on fears and threats and those things that are important to us and we're feeling uncertain and we have a standard response and we just trigger into that. Um, we have to develop the ability to trigger into the reflective mind, the, the system two mind, where we think about and step back and say, okay, now let's do that. And that's where we start saying, okay, what's the ground rules of this discussion? What are the, the, you know, what can we discuss? How are we going to discuss it? What are the rules? What are the reasons? This is the level on which science works. It's the level on which logic works. It's, it's the level on which reflective problem-solving works. And I think that too often we're dealing with our own insecurities about sex, for example, that we can't step back and say, that, okay, I have some I, real feelings. I want my kids to turn out all right. I want them to become adults in their own, own way. But we have difficulty stepping back and saying, how do I help accomplish that? One, one quick story from, I was teaching health ethics uh, at York. And most of them were nurses. Um, there were a few others, a couple of people wanting to go to medical school and a few other people scattered in. And we used a case study method and reflected on it. One of the topics we dealt with was the notion of autonomy and autonomous choice in medical practice. So at what point does someone have the ability, is someone autonomous and capable of making choices in that process of what, what happens in that? One of the students came to me after we'd been dealing with this section and said, you know, I have a 17 year old and I realized that I've been trying to make his choices for him. That I've not been willing to help make him autonomous in his own decision making. And I really want to thank you and the, and the class for this discussion because we had wild free-ranging discussions. For, that was probably one of the most powerful um, 
positive comments I've gotten in all mm -hmm. of my teaching. Mm -hmm. And I was not trying to teach that. Mm -hmm. I was simply, mm -hmm. we were talking about autonomy. She made that connection and said... Te teaching that by example. Teaching by example yeah, and teaching yeah. by discussion of issues about end-of-life issues, when are people autonomous and not, issues about you know, teenagers and kids making decisions about medical choices, at what stages, how are they doing, how do we facilitate that autonomy, what is my role as a medical, profe medical professional, is to help facilitate that autonomy, not to impose my decision on you. And that is part of it. And that is part of what I think we need in the area of sexuality as well, is how do we facilitate that sense of autonomy and reflective autonomy, not the kind of crude sense of, of, I can make up my own choices and I will base them on my system one reaction. Right, right. But I will base my choices on a reasoned response. Right, And look right. at the evidence. A thoughtful response. I mean, I think, you know, having studied and read philosophy for years, as I'm sure you would agree, I think that's what reading Plato to some degree did for me. As troubling and problematic as some of Plato can be oh, and yeah. is, and very contrived in its own way, difficult to read through the sarcasm sometimes, but the Socratic method for, you know, the chuckles that it might now be yeah. getting for those who are listening is helpful. Because Extremely the whole helpful. idea is to unpack it a little more. Let me tease that out. What do you mean by this? Tell me, right? And that's more of the slow response versus the fast response, I think. Yep. And then hopefully, which that gives us the, the freedom and the ability to then think about it later as well. Yeah. Right? And to go back to your line earlier about how do we talk about what we see. Mm. So we see, we, we respond quickly. That's the fast response, but why not come back to it later come back. and unpack it with our friend, yeah. our partner, our wife, our husband, our yeah. son or our daughter yeah. or whatever. You're getting around, you know, yeah. you, you yeah. know, find out your child, your whatever, had been watching sexually explicit material. Okay, fine. You get off on it. You like it. You're around by it. Why? Um, yeah. I mean, have you thought about this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And C come back with a question. With a, uh, this is where I think a well-placed question yeah. just works or can work wonders and getting them to learn to open up and discuss because part of what you're doing is establishing a, a climate of trust to discuss this totally 100 percent. i think you know you're doing what that woman came to you yeah and said right yeah you've you've done this for me with my son and this is exactly what we're trying to do with our kids i mean i, I the listeners will know i talk about freedom choice and responsibility all the time mm -hmm. and i think this is where you know modern existentialism has done wonders for me in the sense of my own thinking and my own commitment to my mm -hmm. own thinking. I want to, you know, I don't care if my son becomes a doctor or a lawyer or a dancer, but I do want them to be able to make autonomous choices and say, I'm doing this because. And reflective choices. And reflective choices. You know, yeah. the other uh, couple of weeks ago, we're at a friend's house. The X-Men is on Wolverines and uh, Spencer wanted to watch it. To his credit, he came and asked me if he could first. And uh, Victoria was in there, and I thought, gee, I don't know, I don't know if that's the best idea, just because of what we've watched so far to date. She's seven years old. Yeah. I came into the room, and she had her back turned to the television, and she was playing with uh, a toy, <laughs> and I and I was able to talk to her about why did she she chose not to watch it because it was making her uncomfortable. Yeah. Or it, she didn't like the violence, or there was something about it, but she stayed in the room, and I just, I don't know, I saw, getting a little chill, a little shiver, I saw uh, a, an autonomy there. Yeah. She wasn't worried about anyone else in the room, and I thought, wow, that's a good sign. It's a good sign. You know, it's a good sign. And I hope that that uh, we're doing that with our kids in other ways, too. Um, I, I, Spencer, one Spencer, thing. Spencer wanted to know yeah. uh, what banging was the yeah. other day. Yeah. Uh, about a month ago, uh, there's a 
uh, a song. Oh, now I'm just going to show how old I am. I don't know who sings it, but there's a, a, a line, bang, bang, into my room, I think is the line or something like that. So anyway, he wanted me to watch the video because right. his friends were talking about the video. He might have even seen it, but he hasn't admitted to that yet. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, watch it. And of course, wow, this is pretty over the top. And then you look at the lyrics and you go, okay, this is just entirely about sex, period, yeah. right? And not even maybe meaningful sex. And so how do I now have a conversation with my nine-year-old about this? But you yeah. know what, John? I told him. I came, I mean, he even had, you know, it was just, it was really quite fun. And, and, and I think you're right about that, building the trust. You and, have to build that trust. You and, have to build that relationship. And, allow, and allowing and, to ima- ask a question another time, right? And, and <clears throat> you're not going to get the whole discussion done at once. Right. Um, good, you're good not going to yeah. change yeah, true. somebody. Yeah. You comment on it. Um, you know, I have, I'm, and again, you're, you know, the response, turn that off, it's horrible, it's demeaning to sex. That's what going to go back to it. That's what my, that's what I would have grown up with. Yeah. Right? That that fast response. Yeah. That emotive response. Get that off the television screen or whatever, yeah. right? Or they simply realize your parents are going to react that way and you don't tell them. And you don't tell them. You and they have it. no input. Right. Right. And, and now my you're parents... Leading, and now you're kind of leading a double life. Yeah. Right. My parents had no... Um, I mean, never talked about sex, never, this kind of stuff was not there when I was growing up. Um, you could find it, but it mm-hmm. was, I mean, they didn't talk about it. They were uncomfortable about it. I knew they were uncomfortable about it. And so what I did simply was not talk. Mm-hmm. And I got my information and other stuff. Other places, um, fortunately, I found stuff that was sensitive and reflective about a lot of it. Right, sure. And was able to think about this, and as I as I I also had another part of it coming in was was learning something about respect for other people. Right. Well, I think that's a huge part of this and, conversation. And that yeah. tolerance, but I got that more through my work in scouts. Huh. Interesting. And my work in other areas. Yes, my parents did not knowingly demean people. They did not. You know, they weren't yeah, this no, kind of sure. thing. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But there were some things that came out of my dad's mouth occasionally that I would sort of cringe at. Right. And sort of say, oh, okay, I... Um, Did you just say that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I go back one, one, one brief thing. Sure, we were sure. talking about this and, and talking. There's um, uh, one of the things I look at is, is also some of the stuff on YouTube. And there was a, a guy that I think is Concordance, spelled funny, I'll give you the reference, and he's talking about the fact that he happens to be a scientist. He happens to be an evolutionist. He happens to be an atheist. Um, and he talks about educating his children about religion. And he's talking about, I think it's concordance. There's two people they tend okay. to confuse. Um, but he's talking about exposing them to religion and helping facilitate their making, making up their minds rather than saying... I'm an atheist, you'll be an atheist. Right, right. And saying they're going to have, you know, I'm a scientist. I want my children to have the evidence. Yeah. I want them to have the emotional exposure so they can make an informed choice when they're ready. Right. And I thought, this is really interesting. You wouldn't have, say, a fundamentalist make that kind of no, probably education. Not. No, no. Pretty, um, if it's happening, it's probably pretty rare, yeah. I think. And even a lot of atheists would, I mean, part of the problem with the new atheism is a kind of 
radical intolerance right, right. for religion and religious ideas. Well, it's a, fun, it's a fundamentalism of another kind. It's really, a different kind of fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there is a lot more that can be said here. There's a lot more that can be said between the two sides. There's a lot that religion does that atheism doesn't do and can't yeah, do. Yeah, sure, sure. And has to, you have to find a, a functional equivalent, and a lot of people have it. Tell me about your students, uh, you know, tw how many, 20 years teaching gender and sexuality and so, and so on. Would you say that students are uh, more open today to talk about these things? Are, are you know, are the uh, homes that they're being brought up in more open? Are their parents talking about them in a way that, you know, you and I right now would like to think they are or not so much? Or is it, is it... I think it varies. Yeah. yeah. When I started teaching it, I had a lot of mature students. And this was back in the 80s, I guess. I had a lot of mature students. I was teaching at Atkinson, which is the night school at York University. And so, so they came with their own assumptions, oftentimes much like mine, and had been raised like me and didn't talk about it. Um, and I had that, a mixture of those and, and younger students. Now I'm teaching more philosophy of sexuality than, than the sociology. I moved, I moved out of sociology. And I get a mixture because a lot of my students are... Um, immigrant students. A lot of them are from places like Iran, Iraq, uh, out of conservative backgrounds. Many of them self-select out before they get to my class, hmm. but a number of them don't. So some of my African students, some of my Muslim students are quite conservative. I would think so, yeah. In their religious things. Why they're there is an interesting question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I've had a variety of them, of them there. So some of them are there to try and learn. Some of them are there to simply reassert their own positions. That's usually a small percentage, but there's usually at least two or three in a class of 50 right? Uh, like that. Um, some of them have a pseudo-sophistication. Right. They've been exposed to a lot, and they have what I would call a false tolerance. Anything's okay so long as you agree to it, right. so long as there's consent. Right, right. Well, let's think about that. And that's when we have to go back and look at, and I throw things at them. Um, one case study I did, there was a, a guy in Germany a number of years ago now, five or six, seven, who advertised, he, he was a cannibal, and he advertised for, for somebody on the web that he could kill and eat. It's not funny, but it is. As a is. sexual thing. You sure this wasn't like a... a, a blacklist episode no it was not <laughs> <laughs> it was a real case and the guy wow. it was maywis m-e-i-w-i-s and i can't think of the advertised other advertised for dinner basically hmm? advertised for dinner well basically <laughs> for a ritual killing and he did it wow and then he froze the body parts and ate them over the next six months it was a but it, his defense was that it was consent. It was consent, right, right, right. Well, as we know, various philosophers would have trouble with this notion of consent. <laughs> yeah, but right. can you consent to your own death? Yeah. Um, and that raises the, all the issues around sure. um, mercy killing and, and sure. euthanasia. But at the same time, that was one of their defenses. This was a form of euthanasia. Not real. Right. That yeah. didn't fly. Um, and this guy had actually advertised, and he got something like, well over 150 responses of people who were doing this and narrowed down, went through the whole process. But the point is, consent is not enough. 
there's also issues of consideration of humanity and consideration of, the, of other people. And that's part of what we need to think about when we talk talking about ethics and the ethics of sexuality and the ethics of dealing with people. It's not enough that somebody gives formal consent and simply says yes. If they happen to be 13 or under coercion, that's not real consent. If they happen to be suffering from, if they happen to be saying yes because you've lied to them and said, no, I have no sexually transmitted disease and I'm not AIDS positive, that's assault. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole series yeah, of these sure, things that, sure. that don't count as consent, but there's also times when you say, there may be a form of consent, but you're still taking advantage of someone. You're still treating that person not as a person in their own right. Right. And that becomes what's critical. It's learning that kind of respect for others, which well, is a you know an important I, I'm sense always of respect for yourself. Always looking for a tie-in to the work that I do international, you know, from yeah. an international perspective, and and just from a from a I guess a social change perspective. And how do we how do we uh, treat others? How do we view the other, and so on? And I mean, it's really kind of interesting that we're kind of coming down almost to a. Uh, a, a human right principle, yeah. in a way, here, yeah. right? With this discussion about gender and, and, and sexuality. And we haven't even talked about gender disparity. No. I mean, that's going to have to be a topic for another podcast at some, some point. Can you t we're, we're getting close to the end of our time together, but can you tell, tell me a little bit about... Um, I mean, I look outside, I listen on the radio, uh, my son and his song, you know, the film, the TV, the, the pornography, lifestyle advertising. It looks like we live in a hypersexualized culture. Are we, or would you still call us kind of Victorian in a way? Are we prudes? Yes, yes to both. Yes, <laughs> yes to both. Yes to both. I think we're, yes, we're prudes, and the reason why we look like we are hypersexual, that looks like this, is a lot of reaction to a form of sexual repression, a right. form of, of we're not being upfront about our own sense and our own values, and we project it outwards. I... When you ask about the hypersexual society, and I was thinking about it, I was saying, I'm not sure we are in a hypersexual society any more than the Victorians were. I think the Victorians were hypersexual as well, as was the or Ottoman Empire. Hmm? Or just sexual. Or maybe just sexual. They were sexual, but I think they were also... Foucault has an argument that talking about something makes it public and an attempt to repress something means we talk about it. So you want to repress sexuality, it means you talk about sexuality, which means pick, pick up on that conversation and say, oh, really, you can do that. And so what you then do is increase the level of discussion about the issues. So you want to talk about outlawing uh, prostitution and the horrors of prostitution, that means you're talking about prostitution. Right. And you're talking about sex. And that means it becomes part of the, uh, of the public dialogue. And even though you're trying to repress it, you're talking about it. Right. And so all the attempts to repress sexuality in the U.S. brings up the discussion. I use the U.S. because I think Canada is a quite different society in many ways. Brings up the whole discussion about sexuality and all of these, these kinds of things. And lots of people look at that and say, oh, really? Um, that stuff's out there. I must go find some. Right, right. And so, yes, I think we have a lot more of material publicly available than may have been. But there was a great deal of stuff publicly available in Victorian times, in the Ottoman Empire, right. in Islamic right. cultures. They just try to repress it, and it goes out in different directions Right. in that way. Um, 
the critical thing, and I think, I think the hypocrisy of all of these, is that none of them sit down and say, let's talk about mm. what is sexuality? What does it mean to be sexual? What's involved in that? And what's the range and diversity of sexual behavior? Different people want different things out of sex. And they want different things out of different times of their life, possibly, out of different kinds of sexual relationships. And talk about what those are. Some people want simply a physical release at a given moment in time. Yeah, understandable. Some people want that as the basis and foundation for a long-term committed relationship. Some people want a long-term committed relationship that involves sex sexuality, but involve also involves sexuality outside of it. Right. The Sweden community. Right. I've interviewed a number of those people. And they are all ways people have negotiated their lives and their world in a sexual way. So we talk about hypersexual society. The critical thing I think we need is that kind of thoughtful discussion about you, sex, not... Well, we're kind of coming full circle in a way, yeah. really, in our conversation here today. Yeah. We need a little more slow thinking, really. Isn't yeah. that what we're talking about? We need... We need more freedom. We need more choice. Autonomy. No and need. that means more knowledge about what people are doing. Authenticity, freedom, transparency, all these yeah. things when it comes to these issues. So I guess the conclusion, you know, not that we, we didn't get into argumentation theory at all, <laughs> really, but the conclusion is yeah. that we, we do need to be talking about sex, religion, and politics yes. more and more often, yeah. it and seems to me. Everything we've said about sexuality. I think applies very clearly to religion mm. and to politics as interesting. well. Interesting, interesting, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To talk about, okay, what, you know, talk with somebody seriously about why they believe, what they believe. And I know I've carried on these conversations with some people um, about religion, about politics, and seen over time an awareness of differences and alternatives. That's what's central to people making, making a clear choice mm. and being autonomous is, what are, what are the alternatives, what are the consequences and implications of those alternatives, and what do I choose, and why do I choose that? And you're forced to then be accountable to yourself and also who you're discussing with, what, what choices you're making. I think ending on accountability is, is not a bad place to, to end. Thanks no. a lot for the conversation I've it. today. Hopefully we'll do it again. Uh, I think we will. Uh, um, for Professor Jean saint from York University, check out uh, his book, Critical Thinking, Argument and Argumentation by Nelson Publishers. I'm sure you can get it online. Yep. And uh, again, one well, you know, I often end these uh, conversations with, you know, there's, there's, there's so much more going on than meets the eye. We've, we've barely scratched the surface. Thanks, Jean. Thank you.